0: There's a pretty nice view from Mountain View, I said Kathleen MacArthur To her friend Judith Wright on a bright summer's day And I don't know about you, but my greatest fears are that someone will take all this beauty away So let's fight, oh let's fight for it, I say
1: 19th Century Women, Part 1 A Lunch Hour Theatre Script by Kathleen MacArthur When we're dwelling on the scarcity of writings by 19th century women in Australia, it's well to remember firstly that education for girls was not only considered unnecessary, but many parents even considered it could be positively detrimental to the marriage chance. After all, what were girls for? but to marry, to love and obey their husbands, handle all domestic arrangements, and bear and rear children. Certainly, many women had servants, and did not have to do the hard manual work themselves. But that did not save them time, for most available servants were untrained and had to be constantly supervised. The standards of Victorian middle-class respectability knew no compromise. The starching and ironing alone would have driven a modern-day housewife onto the couch of a therapist. We can see how it was that few women left records of their lives. So we must be grateful to those who did. This program is taken from a recent collection with the title, No Place for a Nervous Lady. The first two stories are sharply contrasting ones. Both deal with the voyage out... For Anna Cook, everything was fine, but then she didn't suffer any seasickness and her children only lost their hats overboard, not their corpses. For Ellen Moga, it was quite different, for she was sick all the time and three of her four children died on board. The Cook family is made up of Anna and Fred, the parents. Five children plus a baby and Anna's sister, Emma, they are on-board Scottish hero, off Cape of Good Hope, on the 14th of December, 1883. As Anna Cook
2: wrote, "'My dear mother, we are now about halfway on our journey. Travelling towards the Atlantic, the sea was getting stronger, and people's insides began to tumble about, and almost all the passengers were sick. I was obliged to laugh, although I pitied them, because I have never been sick or ill since I came away.' Oh, what splendid waves, so long and even. I thought I could never see anything so grand again. A great washing day was started on a Monday. The carpenter had made a couple dozen tubs out of meat and flour casks. We had to put up our own line, and when that was up, we didn't like hanging up the linen until a Portsmouth woman says... Here goes. And her chemise and drawers went off in full sail, catching all the wind. We did laugh, to be sure. The captain and doctors fairly choked. They watched us from the poop deck. My drawers were hanging up just over the butcher's table and kept flapping in his face. And he said...
1: By Jove, I wish this woman was somewhere else.
2: I could not keep from laughing. We had just entered the tropics when a cry of... SHARK! I couldn't see it but it followed us and the sailor said it was a sign of death and in less than 12 hours a young man fell down and died. He was buried the next day. There is a great deal of sickness on board. A little girl has died. She took cold and was soon gone and since then her brother has died so now the poor woman has lost both her children but is expecting another shortly. You'll be glad to hear that we get our stout every day. It looks so comical to see the women go to the dispensary every day at 12 o'clock. One man borrowed a baby, carried it to the doctor and says...
1: You see, sir, unless I have some stout, we shall be obliged to wean this child.
2: So he had a drop. Everything is done to make fun.
1: And there we leave the happy-go-lucky Anna Cook and her family and share the tragic voyage out with Ellen Mojo.
2: My dear parents... I have a very melancholy account to give, which I cannot do without great excitement to my feelings. We had a safe, and many would say a delightful voyage, but for the first five weeks I was scarcely able to move my pillow with seasickness, which brought me so low that I could render but very little assistance to the dear children. Poor little Alfred was the first one that died on the 30th of October, and on the 8th of November dear Fanny went, and three days after, on the 11th, The dear baby was taken from me. I scarcely know how I sustained the shock. When poor Fanny went, it overpowered me, reduced me to such a low nervous state that for many weeks I was not expected to survive. It seems I gave much trouble but knew nothing about it and I was quite conscious that the dear baby and Fanny were thrown overboard but I would persist that the water could not retain them and that they were with me in the berth. I was bled and blistered Or rather, you can have no idea of the effect that sea has upon some constitutions. Mine, for instance, was a sort of sea consumption. Our captain took great notice of our children when he saw them gradually wasting away and would send for them into his cabin and give them port wine almost daily. In fact, wine and water was the only nourishment they took for weeks, and that was given to them too late. The doctor was a young and very austere man, and during the first half of the passage, very careless and inattentive. But during my last illness, he appeared quite attentive, allowing me more brandy, arrowroot, or whatever I could take in. We had 30 deaths during the voyage. Whilst I write, many thoughts of scenes and past trials enter my mind. However, as I am enabled in strength of body, I trust I shall, of mind also, experience more resignation to my circumstances
1: our next guest in this program is quite the most entertaining character in the collection of 19th century women Annie Baxter Annie Baxter liked the sense of being loved by hundreds she wanted to be special as a bride of 17 the vivacious and well-bred Annie had sailed to Australia with her husband Andrew Baxter three years older than his wife. He was one of the officers guarding convicts on the Augusta Jesse. He was himself a penniless lieutenant on his way to join the 50th Regiment in Van Diemen's Land. Annie had married him, as she admitted. I was only bent on pique. They were an ill-matched pair, and soon the refrain began.
2: Oh, no one can half-conceive the horrors of an unhappy marriage but those who have experienced it.
1: At least Launceston in 1834 could provide distractions for the young Mrs Baxter. Here was a familiar world of social privilege, where days were filled with visits and band concerts and gossip, and nights were dinners and balls. If her husband did not admire her, there were other men to pay court, on her terms. Andrew Baxter often spent his nights as well as his days away from home, ostensibly at the barracks with his fellow officers. By 1838, his wife was complaining that... He is becoming
2: what he was before marriage, what gentlemen call a pleasant fellow, smokes all day, drinks all night and can sing as long as any of them.
1: Over the years, she discovered that her gift for words could serve well in her determination to be significant. She talked and she wrote. Her journal became a source of pride. It was her in words. The Baxters moved to the Maclay River District of New South Wales in 1839 to go into grazing. It was from there Annie wrote her letters to her friend Henrietta. January
2: 1840. And so, you really and truly wish to know what a bush life is? A bush life. Oh, tis the most rustic thing you can possibly imagine, almost approaching barbarism, but to commence. The time at which Mr Baxter took it into his head to settle was August 39. We had no house or hut of any kind of our own, nor had we even fixed on one particular spot to erect any. Very soon after, we pitched our slab hut on a pretty flat, close to a nice creek of fresh water. We had two rooms separated by a large tartan Meg Merrily's shawl. One was our bedroom, the other sitting room and kitchen. We were determined not to get into debt, so we commenced feeding ourselves on cornmeal. Now, this is most excellent food for young chickens, but unfortunately, we are not chickens. Therefore, we all began to look uncommonly thin, Baxter, not being very strong, could stand it but for a short time, and flour being £75 per tonne, the next thing considered was what we should eat. Rice is low. We will send for some rice. We can mix that with cornmeal, and I dare say it will be very wholesome. The rice came. We ate it with coarse sugar and no milk. We did not find it to improve our condition, but it was pleasing to know that it agreed with others. To witness the mice, cats, etc. I really cannot tell you the millions that fed on our rice. At last our cows began to increase and the dairy was made, but we had no person to make the butter and cheese, excepting our overseer's wife, who had a natural taste for the dairying. After making the butter, Mrs Webster used to wash it at the creek. I remarked one morning to the milkman that there should be a great quantity more butter than there was.
1: Oh, ma'am, when Mrs Webster washes it, she lets it go through her fingers and it runs up the creek.
2: For a few minutes I was quite puzzled. I never remembered in all my geographical studies to have heard of things of their own free accord floating against a current. At last I understood that our fair friend allowed the butter to run up the creek into her hut and then down her throat. So I dispensed with her churning and commenced doing it myself. Succeeded pretty well, but oh, the labour! I will end the first letter wishing you every happiness out of the bush. I remain always AMB Annie M. Baxter. February 1840. When my daily business was over, I used to go sometimes for a ride on a favourite mare. Miss M. MacLeod and I had taken an agreeable ride one evening when we climbed up a steep bank to come home more quickly. My horse put her foot on a loose root when nearly at the top of the bank and she and I rolled back twice together. Poor thing. I thought she was killed. Marion screamed out, Oh, she's killed! And I, in an equally sonorous voice, said, No, I'm not. Overran Baxter and first remarked,
1: I suppose you've broken her knees.
2: His anxiety was for Jessie, my mare. Marion's and mine for myself. Had I been hurt more than it was, it had been all the same, for no medical aid was to be procured, excepting a Mr M, who, after feeling my pulse, nodded his head significantly and determined on bleeding me. And so I was blooded with a penknife. Oh, ye nervous ladies, never come to the bush. I soon recovered, and Dr M said it was owing entirely to his medical
1: treatment. Captain Sturt says in his account of New South Wales that a person may lie in the open air without being annoyed by any insects of any kind. Surely times have altered very much, for we have all sorts of gnats, mosquitoes and midges.
2: People do differ, though, and I hope for comfort's sake that Captain Sturt was never bitten as I have been. Baxter often talks of you sending away your cup of tea at breakfast one morning because you spied a fly in it. Why, I've had numerous flies in mine, and I take them out one by one with such coolness. After tea, we usually retire, so I shall close my second letter to you, having arrived as far in the day. A.M.B.
1: Annie Baxter's journal, so full of people, places, her moods, thoughts and feelings, is always vitally alive. Her marriage, ill-founded from the beginning, deteriorated after they lost their property, Yesaba. She left Baxter in Australia and returned to England. Baxter killed himself when she was away. She remarried and went out to New Zealand, back to England again, and finally came back to live the remainder of her life in Melbourne. She died in 1905. If expression of self-pity is any clue to the most unhappy people in 19th century Australia, our deepest sympathies should go out to the governesses. These poor gentlewomen seemed like square pegs in round holes. There was no niche for them in the colonies. Their letters were a long wail of woe. These English governess ladies were sponsored by an organisation called the Female Middle Class Emigration Society. They paid their own fare out, often with money they had to pay back from their meagre salary. Whether this was because they were too proud to accept charity or there was none on offer is not clear. Loneliness and homesickness were their occupational hazards, and being educated women they were able to give expression to such tribulations in clear and poignant senses.
2: Neuropa, Horsham, Victoria, 2nd of October, 1871. My dear Miss Lewin, I did not write immediately on arrival thinking it better to give myself time to form an opinion of colonial, or rather bush, life. I started for my 300 mile up the country, such travelling in a vehicle one can only call covered cart across miles of uncultivated flat country diversified only by ugly dark pine trees heath and swamps not a person to be seen every 20 to 30 miles a station or small township in my opinion it is very disagreeable for a lady alone traveling in this style i have now had nearly six months experience And without hesitation, I can say it is not a life I should like to try long, notwithstanding the nice, kind people I am with. There are few families as intellectual and well-educated as this. Still, had I known the very isolated life I was to lead, I do not think I should have been induced to come out. This is not the only drawback. One could cheerfully bear it two or three years if there were any advantage to be gained in the end. But I must candidly confess... From what I have heard and seen, there is no better chance of getting on out here than at home. The expenses are far greater and the salaries not in proportion. Consequently, a hundred pounds is not more than sixty pounds in England. That is taking travelling expenses into consideration. The bush life is a perfect exile. There are about three visitable families near. If a governess has friends in Melbourne, it is something like £20 if she takes a holiday. I am perhaps putting things in their worst light, but home ideas of this country are very false. The greatest amusement we have is riding. But even too much of that becomes monotonous with no object in view. As to scenery, there is none. It is certainly the ugliest country I have ever seen, reminding me of the north of France. I only wonder how the sheep thrive on such poor land, for mutton forms the principal dish. The living is simple enough. There are times when we cannot get butter, and I have not yet experienced the hot weather. The garden is looking nice, but nothing to equal the flowers at home. All I can say is that I do not like Australia and would rather be in England with £50 than here. With kind regards, believe me. Sincerely yours, M.A. Oliver.
1: Our next governess letter writer, Rosa Payne, was more vehement.
2: 13th of August, 1869. My dear Miss Lewin, my impressions of the colony of Melbourne are thoroughly unfavourable. I was not one hour in it when I regretted deeply the step I had taken. Had I possessed the money, I would have returned in the next ship. I do not use too strong a language when I say no one with the tastes, habits or feelings of a lady should ever come out to Australia. It may do for mediocre governesses who can put up with roughness, but I would never advise a lady to try it. I hate Australia and the Australians. I shall be with them, but never of them. I would rather have £15 per annum in London than £50 here. Australia is by no means the Eldorado it is supposed to be, or perhaps once was. There is a vast amount of wretchedness and poverty in the country, and men of talent and ability find it most difficult to obtain employment. Even I lately come to the colony, no instances. How much more then for a governess? As to the town of Melbourne, it is beyond anything abominable in every respect. I was more thankful and glad to leave it. I was quite sorry to find by a letter I had lately from Mrs Rowe, another lady governess, who was coming here in the high flyer. I think it is great pity. There has not been one governess to whom I have spoken on the subject, but has not told me they deeply regretted ever coming out, and who would return to England could they afford it, and so very many have gone back hating the place and the people. You have no idea of it. I am quite satisfied with my present abode. I'll leave the word happiness out of the question. I only feel as if all the brightness had gone out of my life. I'm very sorry I did not think of India or Rio, unprejudiced and unbiasedly. I would recommend no one, unless indeed servants, to emigrate to Australia. The climate is trying also. So many sudden changes. The winter has been very severe... You will say perhaps I am writing very one-sidedly. Not so. I am and have by no means seen or felt the worst side of the picture, but I hear a great deal and cannot help judging accordingly. One thing I do know... I never shall like or be happy in Australia and I would leave tomorrow if I could... I just try not to think, or else I would die. But there are times when I must think, and I am weary of life and everything and everyone. Mrs Scott, the lady in whose family I am, said to me on hearing I was writing home, ''Tell your friends, Miss Payne, we are both, Mr Scott and myself, much pleased with you. You are so attentive to the children and so bright.'' ''She does not know my heart is nearly breaking sometimes.'' I knew they were satisfied with me, and I am with them. Dear Miss Lewin, this is a different letter, perhaps, from what you expected from me, but I cannot write otherwise. It would be untruthful. Will you write to me? How much I wish you would. It would give me such pleasure of happiness. Yours very sincerely, Rosa Payne.
1: Rosa Payne never did accept Australia. She spent three years in the colonies, last one in a school in tasmania where as usual she disapproved of the principal who as she wrote as is usual with bush ladies no mind or thought as the editor of no place for a nervous lady remarked
2: if the bush was to be home an emigrant gentlewoman needed to believe that there was more to life than gentility
0: nobody knows the trouble i've seen Nobody knows my sorrow Nobody knows the trouble I've seen Glory, hallelujah Sometimes I'm up, sometimes I'm down Oh yes, Lord Sometimes I'm over trouble I seen nobody knows my sorrow nobody knows the trouble I seen glory hallelujah this podcast series was produced by the Sunshine Coast Council Heritage Library with the support of a strategic priority grant from the State Library of Queensland This series was produced in 2022 and may not be reproduced for any commercial or non-commercial interest.